Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast, a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to make them, how to get them made, and how to try not to what, Robbie? To F it up, Giles. In our very own opinion. Obviously, you can hear I am with the wonderful Robbie McCain. Hello, mate. Hello, Giles. How's it going? Very good. What are we talking about in this week's podcast? Well, there's this guy, Mike Atkinson, yeah. and I'm just looking at the notes you've made for the interview. It seems a bit strange. I mean, he's a helicopter pilot, expert on the outback, apparently made his own film, used solar panels to power all the stuff, walked across... The Australian bush. This doesn't sound like a real person, Giles, if you just made this person up. It sounds like I made this person up, but this is my Atkinson. He has done all those things, and he did make a film all on his own with no crew. And it's an incredible story of what he's done, and he did it by listening to podcasts like this and watching YouTube videos and learning how to be a filmmaker, learning how to edit his film and get it out there. He had no knowledge beforehand prior to... No, not really. No. Photographer, and yeah. I'll tell you the story in the podcast today. <laughs> you will hear it's it. It's coming up. What a great guy. What, what an inspiration for any filmmakers out there. The Mike, genuine just, bush tucker man. He's a genuine bush tucker man. He eats from the ground. He survived. He survived for 30 days. Avoiding crocodiles. Yeah. Uh, what did he eat, Robbie? What have I written down that he ate? Dog balls. Correct. <laughs> Find out. <laughs> What, he didn't tell me what they taste like, which is a real shame. But you do see it in the film, and the film is available now. It's Outback. It's called Surviving the Outback, and it is available. Um, so that's what we talk about, Robbie. Where am I going, though? Where are you going? Where, Where are you going? going? You're going to wonderful Miami, isn't that right? <laughs> I am. The Dare I am. World Premiere. Yes, babies. For those of you who've been on this journey with me for this time, this whole podcast time, finally. Well, it's not getting released yet. <laughs> you have to wait for that. But it's actually doing its film. being seen. It's, it's being seen. Seen by an adoring audience. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> I am actually a little bit nervous about it, to be honest, because it's the first time people are seeing it who aren't in my circle, and that's scary. It's scary. You nervous? These, yes. Yeah. These are horror yeah. fans. These yeah. are people who like and care about horror. And I'm trying to give him a horror film and go, please like it. Mm. Hope it's nice. Not a crowd you want to uh, piss off or annoy, no. really. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm going there on Thursday with Bart Edwards, my lead, and my co-writer, Johnny Grant. And we might do a live episode. What else have I got to do? Rain dance. Yes, rain dance shout out. You can get in free uh, to their next Taster Day. It's Saturday the 31st of August at 11am. And you can go there for their filmmaking course workshop about directing, screenwriting, producing, and getting invaluable knowledge about the industry, getting tips and tricks to break in. It's brilliant. It's rain dance. Have you been one of those workshops, Giles? I have. Yeah. I have, and it was fantastic. To be honest, they should let me teach. Do you know what I mean? I'm, not, <laughs> I'm that knowledgeable and full of tips and tricks. Rain but dance. Go anyway. Listening. Go anyway. Apply. Yeah, get free tickets. The uh, the code is Open Podcast 19. All the links are in the show notes. Thank you, Robbie. All the notes are in the all the. <laughs> Wait, what's happened to my brain? Use your words. <laughs> All the links are in the show notes, people. Yes, talking of which, the Make Your Film event is on September the 3rd. Mm. Myself, Dom Lenoir and Robbie will be there. Our special guest is already announced, Anthony Woodley, who made the brilliant film The Flood with Lena Headey. So come join us September the 3rd. Tickets are available now and there's still some early bird tickets left. Get them quick. Part 5. Part make 5. Your make Your Film. We'll see you there. If you've been to any of the others, you know how good it is. If you haven't... 
I can highly recommend. Always a great panel, some great knowledge on display. Yeah, you won't regret it. And I, as I always say, it's so important to come and mingle and network. There's a Q&A. Mm. Get yourself there. Robbie's already met one of his. Well, did you meet your screenwriter? Screenwriter, yeah. Joe, Andrew. And I've met lots of actors. Yeah. Yeah, producers. It's great. So you met at the Making a Film event and you can do that too. I know that Sarah Thomas and Will Kenning are hooking up because of that event as well and because of the podcast. So get out there and get yourself networking and making your films because that's what it's all about. It's called Make Your Film, people. And also... Screencraft. Screencraft have just announced their brand new action and adventure screenplay competition. So if you have an action and adventure screenplay, get it into Screencraft now. August the 1st it is just open for the early bird deadline. Get in there, get involved, because they have an amazing panel of people who do look at your scripts and really help you to get your film made. There's been so many success stories and there's some big people who will read your script. So get involved. Screencraft action adventure if you have that screenplay and it is the best it can be then get in touch now all the links are in the show notes aren't they Robbie they are a few shout outs this week go to the James Hughes thank you James as always Corey Marvin Sarah Thomas Diane Knight Rock Fight Films and Matt and Tori Butler Hearts the film The Isle is available everywhere around the world go get it is it around the world I don't know but it's most places where you listen to this podcast so get on it and do it um, mm. thank you for listening thank you very much for listening if you've been listening for a while do give us a nice review why not go on to Apple Podcasts and do that for us and if you like this spread the word tell your friends should we get on to today's podcast yeah with, with the fantastic Outback Mike all the amazing stories he has to offer this is how Mike managed to make a feature all by himself in the outback it's amazing you will be inspired to go and make your film enjoy it is my absolute delight and i can't believe i've got you on it is outback mike otherwise known as michael atkinson hello mate how you doing g'day good thanks yeah really good i mean obviously we can tell from your voice straight away uh that you are not english or american <laughs> yes <laughs> Yes, some, yeah, some might were... call it a speech impediment. I have to uh, speak slowly in certain places where I am around the world. So I actually just got Fine. back to Australia right now and it's nice being able to speak normally and people understand. I love the accent. It sounds beautiful to me. Um, we've had a couple of Australians on the Filmmakers podcast and they've always done really well, the episodes. So when I heard that you wanted to come on and that you were potentially a fan of the show, from what I hear, yes, um, that's right. I was like, well, yeah, why would I, why would I not? Your story is amazing and, and fascinating. I was like, yeah, let's do that. So let's talk a little bit about you, your background, your filming, why you came up with a surviving the Outback idea in the first place, because it's kind of crazy. You know, one person going out into the middle of the bush and having just yourself, no film crew, no survivor around, and still making a brilliant film, because that is tough as shit. Tough as old boots to do it. And you've, you've managed to create a really wonderful film. Thank you. Um, which, uh, as far as I know, is out now everywhere. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, being distributed by Gravitas Ventures. So it's on iTunes, Google Play, uh, DVD, Amazon, all those different things, yeah. Perfect. Now, I suggest you do go watch this film. Certainly watch the trailer and realise what Mike's gone through. And after you've listened to this, go watch this amazing film. It's just so beautiful to see all the landscapes, to see how you did it. So let's go from the top because you were Army Chopper pilot, right? And survival instructor. How did that even start? How did you move that into filmmaking in the first place? Yeah, well, it actually goes back to when I was a kid. I, I watched Top yeah. Gun and wanted to be a pilot. And <laughs> there's Seriously? this guy called... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think 
I mean, I plenty it. of kids watch that and want to be pilots. Yeah. I was always into camping and I saw a documentary about these aviators uh, that I made the film about in the end when I was a kid as well. And I always thought, yeah, I'd love to make a film about that because there's this guy called the Bush Tucker Man um, who's actually popular in the UK, I think. And he's this army guy that goes around showing how you can eat food in the bush. So those two things, I, they were the two goals that I wanted to sort of do in life. And I've been prioritising the flying goal up until now. And I'm now just moving into the filming goal. So I always wanted to make films about survival. So when I was doing the piloting stuff, I was just taking every opportunity I could to in, learn about survival, do courses, become a survival instructor. And uh, also keeping that in mind, I did a lot of photography and filming of other adventures, just knowing that that would come in handy one day. And then really the last 10 years I've knuckled down and put time into the filmmaking and uh, done my first film whilst I'm still a full-time pilot right now, but I'm going to leave at the end of the year and make films full-time. I just wanted to sort of go from one place of financial stability before stepping out into the unknown, if you know what I mean. Yeah, into one that isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's amazing. It's really interesting, your journey, because... Unlike a lot of people, you started filmmaking later in life, I suppose, and your passion came from different sides of it, which meant, you know, you were like, well, if I film this, it's going to be better. It's going to be really cool. How did you even learn to know how to, you know, take photos, to learn how to film in the first place and make really nice shots? Was it trial and error? Uh, It was. I was always into adventures and anyone that's into the outdoors always wants to try and capture it. So I was always into taking photos as a kid as well. And then yeah. knowing that I'd make the films, I, I tried to video what I could. And when I was a chopper pilot, I did a fair bit of videoing as part of my job as a reconnaissance pilot. And I used to also make videos for the squadron on operations where I'd you know film all the, the cool sites of things and make videos for guys to take home. And so I started to learn about what looks good from an aerial shot perspective and what doesn't look good. So a lot of it was what, what doesn't look good and knowing how to avoid that. Uh, so that, that development was was pretty important. And then initially I pitched the idea to networks uh, that I would have a f- sort of film crew along because I didn't know mm. how to make my own films. And whilst it got a lot of positive response and I had a production company take me on and the network's making a lot of really positive noises, no one ever actually signed on the, the dotted line. Right. And I thought, oh, well, the, the second plan of attack is to just learn how to do all this stuff myself so I've really spent 10 years learning all the different ways of doing it and I I wouldn't have waited a full 10 years it was just that I had some other opportunities come up in flying that I couldn't pass up Um, but now I feel like I've got as much as much as I can out of those opportunities so I just went hardcore into going and making the first film so really it was my film school making this film yeah and so I didn't expect to make anything out of it in fact I didn't even know what would be the end result I thought I might make a six-part like 10 minutes mini episodes for YouTube when I finished. But when I got back, the footage was, I showed it to some people and they said, oh, you know, you really, you can make a lot more out of this than just something on YouTube. And so it yeah, turned into a film uh, and I didn't really think about what the definition of a film would be, but it's it's turned out into a, a film. That's incredible. So you set out on this adventure. And so everyone knows what this adventure is. There was two um, stranded German aviators in 1932 who had to use their skills of survival. And yeah. they came across some Aboriginals who did uh, eventually rescue them. Do you want to yes. just pitch that real quick? Because it would be better, yeah. much better than mine. Sure. Of what so that, that story is. Yeah, they were, they were Germans. They were flying from Germany to China via Australia to promote this seaplane um, for you know, business purposes. And 
on this last leg um, from Indonesia to Australia, a, a journalist suggested it would make a better story for him if they could do it at night. And because they were promoting a plane, they sort of caved into the peer pressure and thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And it resulted right. in them getting wildly lost and thinking they were, you know, 500 kilometres from where they really were. And they ended up thinking they were in the wrong spot and over sort of six or seven weeks tried all these different ways of surviving their own way out because they didn't think anyone would be looking. Well, no, just no one came looking for them because they were all searching in the wrong spot. And they right. ended up thinking they were going to die. They, they made a raft out of one of their floats and everything and they thought they were going to not live another day and then they that's when they were rescued by Aboriginal people. So it's an amazing story and the pilot wrote a book about it. So there's a record of everything they had and all the things that they went through. So when I was researching a historical topic to, to base my first film on, I looked at a whole bunch of stuff, but I this was always the first one. And I saw a documentary about it when I was a kid, when I was nine, my parents were watching it and I asked a question about it. So I always had that in my mind. And so I, I put myself in the, the same situation with the same materials that the guy listed that he had in his book. And instead of having a seaplane to make a raft out of, I just made my own floats out of 44 gallon drums. And yes. I didn't want to copy what they did. I just wanted to see if I could use my skills to see if I could get out. And yes, it's unfair because, you know, I grew up in Australia and I've got heaps of experience in the bush and they were from Germany and never been to Australia. So I'm not trying to poo-poo what they did because they, they did an awesome job. I just wanted to see if I could do it and get out without requiring a rescue. And then it's, obviously to try and film that, figure out what I needed to do to bring and film and create it all. It's a really fascinating story because the fact is you said, like you said, you really like this story. You were like, look, I want to recreate that. But then the other side of that is you want to film it at the same time and go out and make a feature film on your own uh, and one that could stand up. And like you say, you didn't really know what it was going to be, which I find fascinating. I find the fact that you went out there and went, oh, I'm just going to shoot this. There must have been moments when you thought, oh, do you know what, I'm going to, I'm really struggling to eat here. I'm really struggling to drink any water between the, the, the big long treks you had to do across the plains. Um, you must have thought, do you know what, do I really need to put that drone up in the air and capture this moment? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm thirsty, but yet you still did. You did it every time and to brilliant effect. I mean, those shots you've got are gorgeous. You know, there's no, there's no sort of half-assed messing around you've got some brilliant footage i'm like how how did you do that on your own and keep saying and keep going and talk I, us through it i had to um di divorce the side of my brain that gave in to discomfort so i was obviously very tired and fatigued from the survival aspect and then all you want to do mm. is just sit there and lie down and because i've done a fair bit of those kinds of things i knew what what my frame of mind would be but i just put so much effort and expense and risk into doing the expedition anyway i thought i can't get to the end of this and go oh i really must have done this i had to have got up before sunrise i should have put the effort in so i just didn't allow myself any break at all for the whole trip and um so next time i do do one of these trips which i'm certainly planning on doing i've just got to maintain that that rage you know inside your head that uh, you just got to keep keep going the rage inside your head are like that the rage <laughs> keep it going how many days were you out there uh it was about 30 Total. all up it's yeah. 30 days right that's so our audience knows 30 days you on your own in the outback filming and trying to survive and trying to get to the places where you needed to get to when i, I think a lot of times you hadn't been to any of these places before uh, am i right most uh, of the places. Th that's right yeah i had been yeah. to the kimberley area a but a lot of the places i went to on this i hadn't been to so yes. and also and it's not scripted so 
I didn't yeah. know exactly where I was going to be. So that was also difficult, quite a challenge to know how I might film it because I didn't know what was going to be important and what things I needed coverage of. And that term coverage I only discovered the other day, but because I listened to podcasts, that's how I learned um, a lot about how other people made films. And they, they would say terms that I didn't know what it, what it was and I'd go and Google it and find out what it was. So obviously coverage, as I've since discovered, is is when you want to edit something later, you, you want to have it covered from a bunch of different angles. So I didn't know what would be important. So, for example, when I made the, the rafts, after welding them all together, I discovered all this rust and one of them was falling apart. So you spend a lot of time filming that and because that might be critical later and it might be the crux of the story and why I ended up sinking. But nothing yes, happened. Yeah. So, you know, and sometimes I'd, I'd be out in the bush and I'd come across a certain piece of bush tucker or bush food and I'd spend a whole bunch of, you know, a couple of hours filming different, you know, and establishing shot, close-up shots and whatever. And then I'd finish all that and I'd walk another kilometre and find a much better example in a far more beautiful place and have to repeat the whole process again. <laughs> so you constantly just, you can't relax because if you walk past something, it might be the only time you see it and it, it might be critical later on. So I had lots of footage at the end of it, which took a long time to get through and really nut out what the story would be uh, yeah, at the end. I can, yeah, I can imagine. So just jumping back slightly, just so you, you listen to our podcast, as far as I am aware, and yeah. you heard terms and you heard things and went, okay, I'm going to Google that now, work out what it is and then go, oh, right, okay, so that's coverage or that's a wide or you need to do it from this angle or that angle or uh, in the edit you have to do it this way. And then you said, right, I'm just going to go do it. Yeah, yeah, well, I was just adding to a bank of information that was being stored in my head. So I was listening to about four different podcast i was obviously youtubing and doing heaps of research on the internet of course yeah and yeah different different terms had come up and there's obviously so many terms it's a different language but when the mm -hmm. same term comes up over and over again you start to get stuck in your brain you go and research it and you find out um you know what's important and and what's not and i love the fact that no one told you've done this on your own you went out and listened to podcasts you went out and watched youtube videos on your own and then went all right i'm gonna go do that i'm gonna I've got my equipment. Did you buy that? I take it you you yes, went out. And yeah, bought so your I bought everything. Drones. So everything was um, self funded. So I probably end up spending about thirty five thousand on you know most. It's mostly on logistics. Probably ten to fifteen. Probably fifteen actually on equipment, but the rest of it was logistics and buying stuff and getting in and out. Uh, so it was wow. a you know a reasonable uh, punt. But because it's something I was planning on you know doing a career change into, it, it was worth it. And I didn't do a film school. Um, so that was also creatively deliberate and I didn't want to learn the rules because, you know, having having been a pilot and done other jobs, you you have to think a certain way but it's just nice to be able to break free and you, you're going to be more original if you don't have that input from other people. Obviously, you, you lose out collaboratively because you don't have other people's input but, um, yeah, I deliberately avoid formal training and then the money that i didn't have to spend on formal training i could spend on the film as well i mean that's something we've mentioned on the podcast a few times is that you know the money you could save from film school you could make a feature film for and you've done exactly that what i really liked about it as well is the fact that you you got these beautiful angles of stuff where because you're the lead in it you're the narrator of the story and it's about you and your journey and to do this on your own is really difficult to go okay well if i walk along here there's a nice shadow on the far canyon yeah. of me so if i then put the camera here that will get that okay so if i walk back and just walk across and that i'm like my god you must have spent 
I mean, you must have been able to do this trip in, you did it in 30 days. I, I imagine you probably could have done it in maybe 10 to 15. Oh, like, definitely. All the yeah, I, I, I chose something that um, I could spend half my space mentally and physically on the filming. Uh, so, yes, I could have done twice as much if I wasn't filming. Yeah, yeah. But those kinds of things, like, so that shot, uh, you know, in the years leading up to it, every time I'd watch anything on TV, when a certain shot came into my um, imagination or watching, just copying someone else's kind of shot, I just, in my iPhone, write a list. So I had this massive list of of shots that might work in certain situations. So, you know, I'd have it under a heading of uh, raft anchoring uh, at sunset, you know, have a massive list of shots. So when I'd, I'd come across some situation and I'm like, okay, I'm in this one, and I'd go to in my list of stuff and go, oh, don't forget to get a shot of this. And because your brain's particularly not functioning well because of lack of food and water, that was really helpful. And so I definitely thought to myself and had it written down that, yeah, if I, if, if I find a nice shadow on a wall, then let's try and include that. So that wasn't – I didn't refer to my list for that, but because I'd gone through that process beforehand – those situations stuck out and I never would have thought of it if I hadn't thought about it, you know, a year before and when I was thinking about what might look good. It's so inspiring for filmmakers out there. It's like, look, don't just go out on a whim. You've got to really plan this stuff. And, you know, I'm all for go make your film, go do it, but plan it. If you don't plan it, you wouldn't have got any of those shots. You'd have just been you and your GoPro or your, uh, what, what camera are you using most of the time um, for speaking into yeah, it was, a, it was a Sony AX53, which is a yeah. really a consumer-level handy cam. Yeah, it's kind of blogger's cam, isn't it? A video blogger's cam. Um, yeah, effectively, and, yeah. And, and, and I great. had lots of anguish about that because I wanted it, the possibility that it could turn into a you know a TV program. I'd never yeah. even thought of it would end up as a, a film because you know, I still hadn't really defined in my mind what a film was, but I was thinking more like a TV series or something. But mm. I Googled the hell out of what's the minimum requirements for broadcast production, blah, blah, and nothing really concrete comes out as far as specs go and people would write reviews and, you know, the camera I had, you know, three levels up, you know, was apparently the minimum for filming religious, you know, church ceremonies <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so when when it, the film ended up, you know, being offered a distribution deal and I was going through the whole QC deliverables process, I was always waiting for that, you know, that that awkward phone call, you know, oh, sorry, but, um, you know, you didn't use this specification, so it's none of it's usable. And it sort of goes to show that um, it's not really – you can just get away so much these days with modern equipment that's relatively cheap. And um, the rest of the – I guess maybe the film community hasn't become aware of that because, of course, you wouldn't choose that kind of camera um, yeah. it, normally, but because I have to have it because it's small and I'm carrying it and I'm also carrying the batteries and the solar panels to charge it. You, you can actually get away with it. And certainly I wouldn't choose to if I was doing a, a more standard filming thing, but it's amazing that you can get away with it. It really is. So let's talk about the, the charging side of that because the battery issue, the card issues. You had you mentioned there about a sol solar panel on the back of your rucksack. So just to picture the image, everyone, is Mike is in the outback, in the middle of nowhere with no way of communication. And he's got his camera, he's got his drone, and he's got uh, expedition stuff from the past in his rucksack, as well as the clothes he needs, even though it's very little clothes you need, yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes none at all. Yeah, right. um, is uh, You've got a solar panel on your back, and this is genius, because now you're able to charge your batteries as you go. How did you even think to do this? Well, I mean, obviously, you, you couldn't do it without, but yeah, it's clever. Yeah. Well, I had to have – well, when I was on the raft, I had a much larger solar panel that folds out the size of, you know, a large beach towel. 
that was, so that was a 100-watt yeah. solar panel and that was charging a half-size car battery because drones are very thirsty on battery and, and I had a laptop, a MacBook Pro, and that goes through a massive amount of power as well because I was reviewing footage and saving it onto spinning disk hard drives every night. So that just chewed a massive amount of power. So you were doing that every night as you went because I didn't see any of that in the film. So you were sat there looking through your footage uh, and downloading your footage onto a hard drive, I imagine. Yes, yeah, and night. all of it was on one spinning disk hard drive too, which was just an oh incredible gosh. risk, you know. And oh, it took wow, about, that's a huge It took me risk. two weeks after I got out of there to finally put another another drive, and I was just like, oh, never take this risk again because, you know, you just no, drop one if of you, those things. if you totally, that gone down a creek or a crocodile <laughs> had got it or, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it's yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My gosh, and that's huge lesson. I've lost drives before and it's just... It, your, your heart sinks it, it cannot sink this it's there's nothing to compare that to so please back up your drives everyone this uh, is yeah. a lesson <laughs> but then you would have had an extra drive did you have the other drives with you just hadn't backed it up no i i, I bought two no. drives and right. i thought that i just i never never really thought of doing it as redundancy i just ran out of room on one drive i had a one terabyte and a two terabyte that's still really little i know you're using you know, you're not using 4K footage, but even so, that's yeah. Well, that, it was yeah. actually 4K, and uh, you were, right. I don't yeah, know it was how 4K you didn't until the middle of the expedition when I uh, the camera was on a tripod and I slipped walking down a hill, and the bottom of the tripod smashed into the ground really hard. And the, the, when I went to turn the camera on the next time, I just uh, it would turn on, but whenever I hit the record button, I'd get the red screen of death and fuzzy lines, and it would shut down. Oh and I just screwing my head off swearing in the bush for two hours just ah you know because i knew that yeah. that was going to be the end of any chance of a decent production and i managed yeah. to get it going again after hours in a in a in hd only so that's why the the film is released in hd where it could have been 4k which is a real shame because um you know half the film and all the drone shots are 4k but i had to downgrade it to 1080 uh for, for the overall export if i had a regret uh, that it's not, uh, you really need a backup primary camera. And yeah. I'll certainly be doing that on future expeditions. Yeah. Something you learned from massively. And it's like you say, this is what filmmaking is about. It's it, when you make mistakes, they're not mistakes. It's just learning for next time, right? You know, it's, yeah. that's if that's where you've got to think of it because uh, yeah. otherwise you go down the rabbit hole of I'm always making mistakes. Well, no, we're just learning. Exactly. And, and it, it was cost as well. Like I didn't want to have to fork out for another camera. Just, and you're already, you know, I've got a family. You don't want to, it's hard to justify yeah, spending so much money. You've got two kids <laughs> and a wife. Yeah. You can't yeah. be like, oh, I'll just get another one just in case I break it. They're really expensive. Plus it's the weight on your, you know, in your backpack anyway, which is already really heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a drone is heavy. You know, you've got to take a drone everywhere, take a camera everywhere, take your batteries, take your, uh, your laptop. Already I'm going, my back's already going, oh my gosh, let yeah. alone, you know, you're trekking through the outback with expedition stuff in there as well and survival well, gear. When I did the hiking phase, <laughs> I definitely consolidated that stuff and only took the, the bare essentials. So the smaller, yes, that smaller 17 watt panel was enough that I could charge my standard camera gear and maybe half a drone battery. And, um, and I couldn't afford to review the footage at all after that at night. Whereas the other bigger solar panel was enough to really meet most of my needs. But the footage review was was very important because it it let you know what was working. So I was I was learning as I went, obviously, and then finding out like, oh, that sound sounds terrible. Why is that? And then not repeat that error. Whereas if I hadn't reviewed it all, I could have found myself coming back at the end and just finding one whole camera unusable or and not getting the most out of certain shots, like certain modes in my drone. Maybe the yaw rate was too high. 
you know, you're just constantly debriefing and learning as you go. So it would take three hours probably every night to to download and review all the footage. And, and you're really tired at that stage as well, but it was definitely yeah. necessary. And how did you learn to sort of expose everything? Obviously, you've got your photographic background, but that's not your background when you're also in the film as well. You know, it's, it's very Yeah, difficult. well, a lesson I learned a long time ago in helicopters was it's usually much safer to go auto. So I deliberately had everything it, pretty much in order other than my time-lapse and star-lapse photography I was uh, going manual for that. But, for example, I had an opportunity once in a helicopter to, to pretty much take it wherever I wanted and I just took the most amazing photos I ever would have taken. Then I got back and I, I tried to be smart and I'd um, restricted the shutter speed to a thousandth and there wasn't enough light and it was all underexposed. And, but because these cameras, the auto is, you know, no one no one complained on any anyone that's seen it. It's been shown around the world in the Banff Film Festival and no one ever made any complaints about exposure or anything. And obviously with other stuff that I'm doing now, I'm, I'm going to go more into manual, particularly with ISO setting. I've just bought an A7S II for, for the next yeah, film nice. that I make yeah. so I can really handle a low light. And I've been practicing that and it's amazing what you can do there. But you have to be very careful because when you're on the other side of the camera, you can't monitor it. And I'm yeah, exactly changing yeah. life-threatening situations. Mm -hmm. I, I could very easily find myself, if I put it in a manual mode, not having time to revisit my camera settings and finding that 80% of this dynamic situation, which is the crux of the whole film, is now not usable. So when in doubt, I have to stick in auto and only go manual when I know I can control it. And like you say, it, because it's a documentary and it's a documentary style and feel, it, you totally buy it. It's not an issue. But autos, you're right. When you're doing it that way, well, stick it on auto. It's all right. As, yeah. You know, as long as... And, it and the, up, it's in focus the, because I'm busy in these shots and I'm trying to steer her off with one foot and and <laughs> and the angle of the sunlight's constantly changing because a drone that's doing an orbit is you know you can't you can't be changing exposure all the way around everything's changing uh, so it's it's more about broad brush techniques to still be able to get good footage if I if I lose a handle on the specifics of the of the camera settings and uh, with the drone as well where you put it you've just got that lovely setting hasn't it which can uh lock on to where you are and then yeah. you can send it out anywhere and it'll stay on you and kind of follow you for a while did it, yeah. you use that quite a bit that works on visual tracking so it got harder as i went along because my shirt got dirtier and dirtier and i started looking like the surrounding so but it often it would start to drop lock <laughs> on me but the, the newer version is a lot more reliable with the with the locking of it 28 days in uh, you can't see me anymore. I am literally Bush Tucker. I am part of the rock. <laughs> that is one of the uh, one of my clothing selections was based on visual tracking. So right. I, I definitely I chose light blue because it, it had some contrast. But yeah, it just ended up being light brown after a while. I love the fact that you've even thought about what colours to wear. You know, you thought about how the camera's going to track you. How's and this was without any formal training. And this is like I say, so inspiring for people out there to go hang on a minute, if Mike can do this and, you know, he's a pilot and he's learned to do this on his own, why aren't I doing it now and I've been a filmmaker and I've made shorts and I've done this and that and the other, why aren't I going and making my feature film? Uh, I know you didn't expect the outcome maybe that you've got from this, but at the same time, you planned it and you've done it properly and it's proved that it's done really well yeah, because oh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, it's more than I ever would have imagined out of it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was also <laughs> lucky, though, that a lot of those things, like like the visual tracking thing, that is mm. like my, my past job. So, like, you know, I've been flying around helicopters um, looking at flare images and, and all those. So those technical sides of it 
um, electro optics working well with with camera gear, but also the mission planning side and and being able to visualize in advance what is going to happen and what the risks are to not only safety but risks of it going wrong and then mitigating uh, ways around the, the the problems that might arise. You know, when you have that weird technical question in your head, you can type it into Google, and half the time the question's pre-filled for you and some guys made a video about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's never been easier to make a, a film. It really is. <laughs> there's, no ex- there's no excuses now, really. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with that. There is no excuses. Let's talk about the money then, because obviously this is, you know, it's, it's you've got to spend money on camera equipment and stuff. Had you just sort of over time, it's because it's something you really want to do, sort of built that up? Did you have any uh, help in any way? Did you do a crowdfunder? Did you... No, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, no. I didn't crowdfund. I'm, I, I might for the next one. I'm not quite sure. But okay. I, I basically thought, okay, I'm going to do it on this date. And I ended up delaying it for a year because the drone laws in Australia were much more restrictive. So I had to wait a year for the drone rules to change and uh, that, that made a big difference. But I knew that I would have to get good at drone stuff. So I, I gave myself a couple of years to get good at it. And that was mm-hmm. quite difficult to get good at because um, I live in a place where you're not supposed to have drones and <laughs> it's, it's difficult. Um, so you got and, good at low drone flying. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. In so, small yeah, it's, spaces. It's difficult. Uh, but I also knew I had to be good enough with it that I could handle handle flying it and get good shots in a, in a difficult situation as well. But I basically spent a lot of time selecting the right equipment and one of the drones the first one i bought ended up being a bit of a lemon and luckily i got onto these other drones that are really reliable but same with the camera gear just a lot of a lot of research and so yeah with when you fork it all out for yourself you just really have to boil it down to what you you must have since that last film there's so many cool new things out that are amazing yeah that's the thing with technology is the fact that you bought these now and you go oh right something else new's just come out and it's even better and it's even better and it does cost and these costs add up but I imagine after this film, it should be a lot easier or easier for you to maybe get some funding and maybe go, look, let's do this as part of, I know you took some photos for, was it the National Geographical? Yeah, National Geographic magazine, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So maybe this, that, that can be tied in next time to help you out, you know, if, especially making, you know, a big film like this, which is just beautiful. And you, we, I was seeing things I thought I'd never see, you know, places I'd never get to go to. And it is wonderful. You've captured that on film and... Tell us about how you managed to do that because you had to get special permission from the Aboriginals. Yeah, that's right. So you need special permission to go into those areas and there is a lot of sensitivities around Aboriginal people and what they do and don't want filmed. So Mm. I've I've had a fair bit of experience with that over the years doing private expeditions on their land and also stuff with the military and I basically got a, a lot of my survival knowledge from Aboriginal people who were very generous in sharing it. So... I, when I when I gave them, I, I called them up out of the blue and told them what I was thinking of doing. And like most of my expeditions, people are trying to figure out, first of all, whether I'm serious and then whether they should really let some <laughs> crackpot, because they're worried about liability. And so, yeah. you know, their, their lawyers are like, oh, you know, this guy hurts himself. We're going to be responsible to, to save him and, and that's a bad look. So I went over there. They asked me to visit. Um, so I went and visited them and they sort of understood that, I was experienced enough and they thought I was crazy, but they're happy for me to do it. And then I also was very concerned that I, I didn't want to disrespect them in any way um, because mm. they are, are already disrespected in so many ways in Australia. And so I wanted it to be something that they were happy with. And so I showed them the footage afterwards and took quite a while because in, in Aboriginal communities, 
it's not centralised. People are living all over the place, so they have meetings uh, every few months and it's difficult for them to make a decision without everybody in the community being involved. So that process took a long time and I was getting a lot of pressure from news agencies and stuff because the media was covering it to release stuff and I was kept on going, no, sorry, I'm just going to have to wait till they come back and say they're happy with it. And um, But they did, they looked at the footage and there wasn't any sacred areas that were being um, you know, shown that they didn't want to see and they had some good advice okay. about stuff they're concerned about their really beautiful areas being trampled and and mm-hmm. things like that. So that was another message that I was glad to be able to put out there. And that's another good thing about makes completely self-funding it. There's no other stakeholders that have their finger in the pie and can tell me what I can and can't say. So yeah. I, can, I can say controversial things and not have to get approval from anybody. And that's that's one of the most attractive things about being a filmmaker, really. Uh, yeah. So when you're paying the bills, you have that luxury. <laughs> that's true. Though you then have too many choices. And this is something I wanted to talk about in the edit, because you must have had so many options, so many choices of where to go, how to start the story, how to end it, how to, even though I suppose you might have had the arc massively planned out, you had so much footage. So yeah. it's choosing that. So let's talk about the edit, because again, you've edited the film having not edited a film before. That's right, uh, yeah. How, how did you go so about I'd, it? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd learned the nuts and bolts of editing in Premiere sure. Pro so, and I'd yeah. made a few clips to music and, you know, I could cut to music and do nice transitions and stuff, but the actual more important yeah. creative making of a story I hadn't mm-hmm. got through. So I found myself after six months, I really got down in a chronological order an interesting selection of clips but it really wasn't progressing beyond that and I knew it and I like right I have to, and I went through this really difficult creative churning process in in my head for like two months it was this really stressful feeling because I knew that if I didn't get over this barrier it would just stay a collection of interesting clips for you know yeah. survival nerds might be slightly interested in and mm-hmm. so I basically had to go back and imagine because I'd written articles about adventures for for magazines before and I basically had to okay. go, right, I just go back and imagine that I'm writing an article, a long article, so it needs a conclusion, a middle and end, and maybe that's the basis for the voiceover. And so I wrote an article effectively in my head of, of how it should sound, and then music is really important as well. So then I looked at sections of what I'd written and what's the emotion of that section, and then I found music mostly through Artlist.io, which I'm guessing you probably heard of, which matched that emotion. And then I would fit that footage back into that musical clip. So it's a constant backwards and forwards process. I guess if you had mm-hmm. a score and a budget, you might be able to fit the music around the words maybe, but I didn't have that luxury. Picking the emotion of what the story was and having fitting music was probably the main thing that I think keeps it coherent anyway from, from a perspective, but it also limits how much you can fit in a song, which is also good because you have to get out of a sequence before you can stay too long into it. So it keeps it moving. I didn't want anyone thinking, oh, this is going on a bit long. So that's why I right. sort of kept it under an hour. And I was trying to make it appeal to a general audience, not survival nuts. So that, but again, that's just you thinking that. Was there any processes where you you showed it to someone and they said, yeah, trim that bit down or that, you know, there's too much here? Or was uh, it just you on your own deciding? It was, uh, it was, it was me on my own, but, um, I watched it a million times, obviously, as you do. And mm. then when I had it at a stage, I think I'm 95% there. I live in a sort of community where there's 1,200 people. So I put the word out there and there's a bit of a theatreette. So I got 
about 80 to 100 people to come in and watch it. And okay. I had, you know, gave everyone a pen and a paper. And when it was a- afterwards, I asked some very specific questions that I'd pre-prepared and then just, you know, any free questions was, you know, did it go too long? Did it, whatever, those kinds of questions. And basically there wasn't any of that, uh, which was good. And I didn't, I wasn't expecting too much of it. Although now that I've watched it so many times, I think I could shorten it in some areas and lengthen it in others. But sure. I got some great feedback from those people and other people. Well, the main feedback out of that was we wanted more historical context and what happened to the aviators. And But some other people were really helpful and said, oh, this bit of voiceover at this time was a little bit garbled. You could make it clearer. So that was my my test screening effectively was a very useful process to go through. Really is. I think, yeah, test screening is really important. Sometimes it's very hard. They cost money. Uh, you've got to find this place, you've got to set it up, you've got to find a screen and get people there. It can be very difficult, but I, like I say, it's having a good community around you and you just need it. All those voices, you, yeah. you obviously can't listen to them all, but you've got to listen to the ones that make sense to you. And you did some really lovely little edits and lovely little moments with, there was an original photo of one of the aviators and you matched that almost exactly of you. Uh, in the same spot doing the same sort of thing and i was like what i mean that must have taken you there was no one looking at the camera going yeah you're just in the wrong place just move a little bit to your left oh uh, yeah <laughs> i was it was basically i took a wide <laughs> shot and then i reframed and rotated it so it was like that was always so my was intention best. so right. it took it took a while to get it that way and yeah it's incredible I'd- all these little things are just incredible when everyone watches the film uh, who's listening to this it's just delightful it's a delightful film and it's delightful to watch all these little touches that you've set this could have just been a normal documentary i say normal in that sense of the word of you going out yeah i'm in the bush i'm doing this and you've elevated it so much by clever camera work by planning your shots and just being excited about the 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 subject that you're actually portraying and i think that is what's really that, that's why this is done so well and that's why you're gonna carry on making a lot of good films like this because you've really put your heart and soul into it and it comes across and it's vital it really is sure. um, let's just jump j- jump back a tiny bit onto your sort of survival skills so a lot of people out there will be going hang on a minute it's all well and good saying let me just go out and film a, you know in the outback but obviously these survival skills you had and you do talk about them in the film tell us a bit about your history of understanding the outback and knowing when a crocodile is going to strike or how yeah, you're sure. supposed to eat dog balls uh, you know um, <laughs> and yeah. there is a thing called dog balls that he does eat in the film <laughs> and they're not what you think because i watched this show the bush tucker man uh, i was always yeah. into bush food so that you know instead of being into the standard stuff that guys are often into i was researching bush tucker books and learning scientific names of plants and stuff and so that was, was from a very young age you were doing that yeah yeah i must have been wow. about 10 or something when um when this show first came out and then in the military i did lots of sort of pretty adventurous things as a kid i always knew that because i wanted to make shows about survival i needed to get some credibility so that's why i went to such an extent to get on these courses and it's not normal for a helicopter pilot to be a survival instructor in a unit that wasn't even part of my own unit so i, I spent a lot of effort getting onto those and uh-huh. so that that unit is made up of predominantly aboriginal people and they give their skills and knowledge back to um, non-Aboriginal people who also instruct on their courses. So that's how I knew what you could and couldn't eat. And there's no one else, I don't think, in Australia that that um, does survival training as well as these people because they get it directly from Aboriginal people. 
Right. So, yeah, I was pretty lucky there. And so Australia is my backyard as far as survival goes. But I've also done plenty overseas as well. So I'm certainly not limited to doing it just in the in Australia. But I might as well start there because there's so many interesting places in Australia. And being a pilot, I've flown all over it. Like I've flown the entire circumference of Australia, most of it at low level in military aircraft, always with my head out the door just going, oh, because I'm just excited by landscapes anyway. So yeah. I've got these maps in my head. I know which places are beautiful, which ones aren't. So I've done a, a recce of the entire country uh, already, Incredible. which most people don't have that that background. So I just know yeah, where, I just know where the really nice way. spots are. Yeah, that's incredible. Because you've also you know you've snow survival instructor. You, you've been to Antarctica and you know survival there and surviving 50, 50 degree heat in Saudi Arabia. So you know how to survive in extreme places. So yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait to see your next one in terms of you know. I've actually done another one in somewhere in the Middle East. I owned two camels and I spent um, wow. nine days out in the desert living like a Bedouin. This was after the Kimberley one, so I had the experience oh, wow. of that filmmaking stuff. Uh, it was extremely yeah. difficult because my camels, I trained them myself and I didn't have enough time and they got injured during the training and some very, very difficult things happened. But I didn't get enough coverage on that film because the, chemical, the camels were so difficult. But there's right. enough that it will add really nicely to a, an Australian film about camels because I want to catch some wild camels and do an expedition in a desert there. Because this has got distribution, uh, mm -hmm. I'll probably end up having my, this film completely paid off, whereas I, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And I've been also be able to, I've also put money back into the uh, Aboriginal community and the, put a plaque up. Oh, it's being put up as we speak really on, on this lookout that overlooks the land where that rescue took place. And, you know, just as a thank you to the Aboriginal people up there because, you know, they don't get uh, the respect that they deserve in, in many ways and people don't know about these stories and they mm. they should. That's so great. What I love here, and let me just get it correct, is the money you've made or any money that you've received from the films you've made so far, you've either put back into your next film and getting more equipment, uh, planning stage, or you've helped the Aboriginals out in, because they helped you out. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so I was actually lovely. surprised that's, as well because when I when I made the film, I didn't at this stage I, I didn't uh, know where it was going to go. So I thought, oh well, I'll just go to Australia and uh, show it to the Aboriginal communities for free. And because that flight went yeah. through Darwin, which is the capital of you know the northern Australia, I just took a punt and thought, oh well, I might I'm going to hire out a cinema and just show it there. And so I did that, and it was a it was a complete yeah. sellout audience and wow. it, it was amazing and then i did another one in broome that was part of a film festival but they yeah. they ended up paying me a, a door thing so i basically made about four thousand bucks out of each of those two screenings wow. Wow. which from wow. a you know from a yeah it's actually a, a tour a returning roadshow is a good way to to get money back on the film and they say all that money is going towards this plaque or it's already gone into it but for future films, I'll probably do the next one on the Barrier Reef. After the film, and there'll be a lot of news coverage as I do it, I'll basically tour the whole Queensland coast doing a tour with with the canoe that I end up, this outrigger canoe that I'm going to make. And so I'll yeah. just do escorted roadshow tours, uh, which oh, is a, a diff different way of marketing it. I mean, that's an interesting story. Any newsletters are going to go, oh, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, newspapers in the local area, radio are going to want to say, hang on, you got here by canoe. And it, it's really interesting stories, which helps, you know, 
get people bums on seats. And I definitely think people should tour. I know a lot of friends, Fizz and Ginger with their film, The Isle have just done that. Uh, Dom, Lenoir, Matt Hookings have just done that with uh, Winter Ridge. And I love my mum. And I think it's really important to do that with those films. All those films are available now, by the way. And they've all been on the podcast if you want to listen to those. Uh, people talk about how they made their films. And th I think that's really important to go on, to do those cinema runs. People always wait for the distributors or sales agents to do it. But actually, you can do it yourself. And you can potentially make a bit of money back as well. Let's talk about the crocodiles for a second then. Because obviously, you, you film a lot of crocodiles. Was there really points where a crocodile could have literally eaten you? Or attacked. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime you're on the raft, that can happen. But if you're standing in an aggressive stance with a pole, it'll, it's much less likely to have a go. So, yeah, I've had a lot of experience with them. And, and I, what's going to kill you up there is being complacent. So I'm, I deliberately maintain my fear. Uh, but also the wonder, because they're amazing animals. When you, when you see them, the colours and, mm. and the scales and their skin, like, it's sort of like they, they're a bit like the Tabasco sauce on a bland on a bland meal, you know, like they just provide the spice, but it's, uh, yeah. yeah. Great way of describing it. I know yeah. it would be awesome for coverage, you know, for media coverage, if I could have a shot of a crocodile almost biting my leg off. But of course. I, I, yeah. I wanted to see if I have a future, a long-term career in filmmaking where I don't need that sensationalism. So I never got <laughs> a shot like that, but no, I, was, I was sort of in a way hoping that, it would be successful without having to have that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But at first you were kind of dangling the leg in a bit longer. <laughs> Just go on then. Go on. I've got cameras set up. Go on. Dare you. <laughs> yeah. Dicing sure. with death. Though, to be fair, you were dicing with death throughout the whole film anyway, with whether you get water or not, whether you could eat. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch. Fascinating. Um, let's talk about sound real quick. You just took the sound from the camera mic top right because i was wondering at one point i thought why well, it sounds really good he's got really good sound and then i thought but he hasn't got a mic on and he can't yeah, i had i had a, a radio a sennheiser radio lapel mic which i used for certain yes, shots uh, right, yeah but okay. mo most of the time it was yeah sort of run and gun literally off the microphone on the top of the camera i knew sound was very important so i did put a lot of effort into it um probably the biggest thing i did sound wise which i know for next time was i thought that it would be watched on people's mobile phones on YouTube. So I balanced the sound of the film to, I was aiming for about 16 LKFS, which from my YouTube research told me that that was the best way of setting the sound. But uh, when I sent the sound off to in the deliverables process, they're like, yeah, thanks for the draft sound, but can you send through the final stuff, please? I'm sort of like, oh. <laughs> sorry, that was, the, that was the final. And so when I looked at what they did to the sound, they reduced it a lot compared to what I'd done. But next time I can just change that from the beginning. I, I know how how to set it up. And I was very undisciplined in how I set my sequences up. You know, I, I wasn't disciplined about having all my voiceover on one line and, you know, native sound on this line and music on the other. So everything was just mishmash everywhere. So, mm. um, I'll, yeah. And also mm. I didn't have a, a post facility go over and do all the sound, whereas now I'll probably – you know, I've got confidence that I'll be able to get distribu distribution on the next film. So I'm, I'm happy to go and spend money because I know that I'll be, it'll be worth it in, in the long worth, run. Yeah. Let's talk about deliverables a minute because were you expecting the amount of deliverables? <laughs> no, so I thought, life, you know? I thought, um, <laughs> I think we, they, they, off, they made the offering. Well, first of all, because this is interesting for people who are trying to get their film distributed. I, I actually heard about, I think it was on your podcast. You had a guy on that, 
had made a film in the UK, found that most of the doors were closed in the UK, went to Cannes, found a few more doors opening but still fairly closed. But it wasn't until he went to the States and started ambushing CEOs. Uh, he just found a different sort of environment there and they were much more open and keen to look for the next thing. And he got much better offers and he took one from Gravitas Ventures. So I used his yes. experience and just went straight to them. And on their website, it's one of those pre-filled messages and you put your info in, add your file and hit send. And I thought, oh, man, I'm never going to hear anything again. And, yeah. and then two months later, I just got an email out of the blue and saying, oh, yeah, you know, give us a call. And uh, so, you know, they offered it there on the spot. So I was, I was absolutely stoked. And it, they, they were talking about, oh, we'll release it, you know, in, in, on this date. It was like six months away. And I was like, oh, what are you, I'm happy if you release it next month. And they're like, oh, no, you've got to go through you know, it, the process takes a while. So I had it in my mind that I would basically just, you know, YouTube a few export settings in Premiere and two days later sure. I'd have. <laughs> there you go. There's the film, but no. Yeah, what did so they ask Six months for? later I'm, I'm still cool. there doing all the deliverable stuff, which is amazing, the amount of yeah. stuff what did, how, well, how much stuff did you have to do? Just let our listeners know exactly, just a quick rundown. Yeah, well, it's well they send you the pages of, of the stuff that you have to do. So, uh well, I mean, if you just look at the audio, for example, you need to separate every single line of audio, send it separately, which is, shouldn't Separate be that spans. hard. But when you've yeah. had no discipline like I did and mixed it all throughout the sequences, that oh, process took a long God. time. Yeah, you've, yeah, that takes a long time, yeah. Yeah, but things like you have to send through a description of every single shot, what it was said in the shot and mm -hmm. uh, everything, the, the, the in and out of every shot and then a separate document with every word that was spoken on the shot. And then an export with all of the, a full export of everything, and then an export without any text on it, so they can make it in subtitles, and uh, and the stills and oh, it's hard to remember it all. But it took months and months of of work, all based around another full time job, of course, as well. Yeah, of course, yeah, so it's, it's really I, demanding and takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it does and it's really it's something the filmmakers do forget when they get that distribution side if you're going out there to make a film for the first time or you've had a studio do it for you or someone else do it for you when you're doing it on your own those deliverables are huge yeah. i mean the, the rewards are massive because you then own the film and it's yours you know all the revenue coming back or which you can point to another film comes to you so there is that that's the benefit but just be aware deliverables are like the fourth part of making your film and yeah. it's just as hard as production. And, and you could export parts of it. Like you could export yeah. the, the, the subtitle bit where you write all the words out. And I think, you know, it's about 1,000 to 1,500 bucks, whereas I just did the yeah. three days work myself. And then you learn about how to do it. And once again, it's, it's film school. So maybe if I start making reasonable money in future, I might outsource that. But at least I'll know... Yes. Uh, how to be good at, <laughs> at least I'll understand all the steps in the process. Exactly. Yeah. You know what goes into it. Yeah. So you could do a bit of it or, or share that with someone else. Um, absolutely. Uh, Mike, this has been honestly incredible. Um, if you could give some advice from what you've learned from going out and making a film on your own with no crew to a filmmaker out there, what would it be? Uh, it's well, certainly possible and it's possible to do it on relatively when I say relatively, equipment like a camera that costs a thousand bucks or uh, probably I don't know six hundred pounds, you can you can do it on a camera like that, and you can pretty much do all the steps all the way through to deliverables completely by yourself, provided you're willing to put in the time <laughs> to do it and uh, take the risk, basically. And obviously, I was um, I was happy that if nothing came of it, I still would have been happy that I had a cool expedition and 
obviously, you know, you don't have to have a film that's based on an expedition. Just that that process is something that you'll have forever, and uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely worth the effort. I think it's an inspiration, and you thank you for so much of your your story there and your knowledge. It's been really wonderful to hear, and you know, I, I do expect big things. I can't wait to get you on after the next one. Um, where can people follow you online? Where can people find you and the film and stuff like that? Sure, they can go to outbackmike.com.au. They can yep. search for Surviving the Outback film and that will take you to iTunes, Google Play, any of those different platforms where it's available. And I'm on Facebook as Outback Mike, Instagram. I think I'm Outback underscore Mike. Yeah, so I've got other expeditions and I just put some stuff up from a Tahiti camera testing trip, which I did. And yeah, so they can follow me in all those places. Yeah, and thanks, I just want to say thanks for your podcast because it's the same. Often, like I look at the subject heading of the podcast, and it might be visual effects, which really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. But I go, oh well, I'll listen anyway, and then I find out all these tidbits about distribution and stuff. So it's a really fantastic way of of getting info um, by doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks. My absolute pleasure, and it's one of the reasons why I, I do it is to inspire someone like yourself and and others to go out there and make their films. And I, I was overjoyed when. I heard that you know in some way we helped you um to go out there and make your film and you know that's what it's all about you know helping each other and getting by and as a community the indie film is quite small the indie film world uh and we can all help each other you know uh, it's it's easier now there's podcasts and youtube and stuff like that um but we're a sounding board and we are here and that's that's the aim so <laughs> I, i'm over the moon over that, the that moon. was another word i had to google was indie because i thought indie film was a film inspired by indiana jones <laughs> <laughs> if only I'd have made a lot of Indiana Jones films now. <laughs> Which would be what I love that. That's great. Oh man. Um brilliant, brilliant stuff. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for your for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Um no a lot and thank you for your knowledge uh, you can follow me at uh, Giles Alderson you can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod go back and listen to our uh, previous episodes as Mike said where you can learn loads of bits and pieces and tidbits about how you can make your film there's big actors in there like Mark Strong there's brilliant producers Ian Sharp uh, Fizz and Ginger there's many 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 directors including um, Neil Marshall there's, there's I think there's 118 before this one now so there's a lot out there um, I might have been 119. I can't remember. We've got some great guests coming up, including the editor of Star Wars uh, Rogue One. And it looks like we have David Coop, the screenwriter of Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, I'm dropping that. That'll be in a couple of months. But that looks like it's all happening and coming up for you. So stay tuned to the Filmmakers Podcast. Remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send that elevator back down until next tuesday go out there and make your film mike thank you so much no worries thank you giles appreciate it pleasure take care everyone and we will see you next week bye bye <laughs>